Millions of young adults will start their lives as college freshmen fall 2017, but before they start shopping for dorm room supplies and planning their class schedules, they have to apply for admission first. Application deadlines at American colleges and universities generally fall between January 1st and February 1st. Applying for college can be stressful as high schoolers try to figure out how best to present themselves and whether they have the right mix of grades and extracurriculars to get into their first choice school. Today on Stats and Stories, we get the inside scoop on college admissions, enrollment, and retention. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Our regular panelists are Department of Statistics Chair John Baylor and Department of Media, Journalism, and Film Chair Richard Campbell. Our special guest today is Michael Cabaz, Vice President for Enrollment Management and Student Success at Miami University. Thank you for being here today, Michael. Uh, to start off our conversation, I thought I'd ask you to explain simply what your job at Miami entails and maybe how data plays into that. Yeah, so my job is to oversee the student life cycle from the point of recruitment all the way through student success. So the idea is that what types of students we recruit, how we attract them, how we support them while they're here and ensure that they get great jobs and go to great graduate schools after they leave. So it's a all-encompassing, really, student lifecycle approach uh, to enrollment management here. One of the things that data undergirds each part of that process, from the types of students we recruit, the types of high schools we visit, to the types of students we admit, and then how we support them while they're here. And certainly, we care greatly about the outcomes of those students in terms of their employment once they leave the university. So how much has your, has your business changed over the you know, two decades worth of time? Yeah, you know, I, I think this is uh, over the last 15 years, we've gone from a very qualitative, I would say, uh, profession to a profession that is very much uh, driven by data. The idea that, you know, the qualitative aspects of understanding the student, it's certainly a one-to-one -one understanding of the student's application, their interest in the institution certainly plays into that. But now, how many students do you admit? How many, you know, what division do they fall in academically in terms of their interest? You know, how many students should you admit in the business school? How many students should you admit in the engineering area? So that the whole idea is that students, when, when you hit nearly 30,000 applications, qualitative is great, but you have to have the quantitative to undergird that part of the process. Michael, what do you think about the, uh, these ranking processes that, that different places use. Uh, I know that we probably got a really nice boost when U.S. News and World Report started ranking us really highly on commitment to undergrad education. How much did that, that help Miami? How, how much did it help in your job? Or did it at all? Yeah, you know what's interesting? Uh, rankings, um, in fact, I was, interestingly enough, um, was looking at some, some recent research on this. And rankings, interestingly enough, are more of a decision maker as it relates to what colleges students apply to for the more selective student. So the idea that the types of students that Miami is trying to attract, actually the rankings do in particular when we talk about rankings, certainly U.S. News is, is the one top of mind. I think every uh, place is getting into the rankings business lately, and we can talk about that certainly. But, but what's interesting, um, the U.S. News in particular, um, when you start to look at the types of things they weight, um, some of those things involve uh, faculty resources. Some of those things, when you start to look at the, the, the outcomes related to this, medical schools within institutions tend to fare well because of the, the, the resources. But what's interesting about the um, undergraduate teaching ranking 
is we believe very much that that's what Miami stands for as a, a very focused undergraduate institution. So that has helped greatly in terms of the market. Um, in particular, international students care greatly. Um, in China is, is something example of the interpretation of U.S. news in China is they believe it's a government ranking. So institutions that tend to be ranked highly certainly have an opportunity to attract international students as well. But Are there particular data points in that ranking that we do well on? We must do well on some things uh, that, that shoot us to near the top that maybe other public institutions aren't doing. I think a number of people, I wasn't surprised by that data, but a lot of people were. Yeah, the, well, so let me let me answer that. The two areas where um, that actually works against us is the faculty resources and our endowment for the type of institution we are. However, on the on the flip side of that, we do really well on the prediction around. They actually do a predicted graduation rate, and uh, Miami overpredicts what they would calculate. So we actually do pretty well in terms of that. The outcomes of our students are are strong, um, and certainly the inputs around our student selectivity. Um, the t quality of the profile is definitely a, a strong position for us. The other thing that's that's an important part of this is reputation plays into this. They 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 do reputation. They have high school guidance counselors reputation and qualitative assessment, as well as peer institutions. Mm -hmm. Very good. You know, you're you're hitting on a bunch of these this the subjects or the the factors that are drivers for a an external ranking scheme of different colleges, and 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 that's. So you're talking about kind of a derived measure that then students might use as, as one of the input factors. I mean, one of the questions that I'm sure is that you would hear very often are, what are the things that are really important for driving the likelihood of admission success to a, a university? How, how, do, how does that play out differently at different institutions? Yeah, so one of the things that's interesting uh, about this topic in terms of student decision making is back in the early 70s, um, uh, out of UCLA, there's a SERP survey. And when you look at the SERP survey, and in fact, the, they, they annually look at about 150,000 students. So it's a large, a large N. And going back to the early 70s, and actually through even last year, the number one reason students select an institution is academic reputation. That has been the, the number one factor, and that hasn't changed. Number two, do I get a good job? And increasingly, is financial aid available? So and, and we get into a net price conversation. So I think as you start to look nationally at the, the landscape of higher education, certainly one of the things that people will say, higher education is becoming more and more expensive. And even for families that are that have affluency, price is becoming a much more factor. But those those factors have always been the, in, in the place. And then we can certainly localize it to some of the conversations around that. But academic reputation has been the driver. So those are, those are the predictors of whether or not someone's going to apply to an institution. Right. So then the question from the student's perspective is, what, what are the factors that I possess that's going to help drive the dis institution's decision to admit me? Okay, so you're talking about the qualitative factors or the quantitative well, factors? Yes. A, a variety yes. of things. Yes, yeah. So, so what's, what yes. plays into that? So I, I think what's really important is you look at the national landscape of institutions, and the vast majority of institutions are open enrollment or near open enrollment. So I think when we have this conversation, if you look at the 4,000 institutions across the country, the vast majority have few, if any, selective criteria. So what you start to move into is the hundreds of institutions then that apply a selective um, in terms of admission, so competitive admission, we'll say. And those are gonna certainly be number one factor, our grades in, in, in college prep courses, um, overall grades, test scores are gonna be in that, that overall uh, and, and so those are going to be the driving factors, essays, 
from that the student writes, uh, college recommendations. So from the guidance counselor, teacher recommendations are going to play into that. And what I would call other factors. These are the kind of the grit factors we talk about. What are the types of things that the student um, has done while they were in school? Did they overcome anything in terms of showing their grit? Uh, the other thing is certainly the activities that the student was involved in in high school. So very few institutions, when you look at the entire landscape, probably 10% of institutions are employing those types, right, versus a more open enrollment or very slightly selective institution. A question comes up uh, in terms of how journalism covers this whole process. And I know you have experience talking to journalists, both student journalists here and and, and elsewhere. Do you see... Uh, instances where journalists are kind of looking in the wrong places or emphasizing the wrong things. Uh, do you have some pet peeves about what you, how, how you feel like you're represented when you talk to journalists about some of these issues? You know, the, the, the pet, it's, it's, it's funny that you use the term pet peeve because that was exactly what was on my mind as you were asking the question. <laughs> uh, loan debt is an example of something that is very, very mischaracterized in the media. When you, when, when you hear that loan debt, um, the example I always say is I say the New York Times every year is going to produce that premier grad, you know, student who graduated at a premier institution with over $100,000 debt, and they're living in the basement of their parents. So the media tends to use that as the, as the way to which this lens to look at. The other thing related to that conversation about loan debt is the one that, that the media really gets on is that they say the credit card consumer debt now has outpaced that of loan debt. So the example I always use on this is, yes, the, the, the type of education is going to give you a lifelong opportunity in your career versus that vacation you couldn't afford over in Hawaii. And that, that's the kind of comparison that the media often, it's, they make a very complicated argument, simplistic in the way in which they do it. When you, when you drill down into the data, when you look at the national debt or the debt associated with students, what you will find is many of them are the numbers we're talking about are extreme outliers. Um, many are students who've accumulated a lot of debt as it relates to medical and law school. Um, but again, there are certain times when students do borrow too much money, but the media tends to definitely make it a much bigger issue than, than the reality. listening to Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. The topic today, college admissions, enrollment, and retention. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Joining me are panelists, Miami University Statistics Department Chair John Baylor and Media, Journalism, and Film Department Chair Richard Campbell. Our special guest is Miami University Vice President for Enrollment Management and Student Success, Michael Cabaz. Uh, as you're talking about uh, what factors into um, you know, uh, student admission. I was reading some stories today about uh, this, I don't know if you can call it a trend after a couple of years, but there seems to be some suggestion that enrollment at universities nationwide might be going down a bit, sort of from a high of a few years ago. Do you have any sort of um, uh, any sort of thinking on why maybe this dip is, exists, or is this another story that maybe is getting overblown um, by journalists and just we just kind of need to hang back? Yeah, so when you... When- I think part of it, what what the way to interpret this is, is the demographics are shifting very quickly. And I think it, less about the overall number, which has basically a little bit of ebb and flow to it. But when you look nationally, I think that's that that's the conversation that tends to be the focus. But when you start to dig into the data, the Midwest is decreasing. The Northeast is decreasing. When you start to look at the West and the Southwest, 
it is increasing at very, very high rates, but it in, is increasing with the types of students who are likely to need more financial aid mm -hmm. and very diverse students. So it really speaks to, it really talks about the types of institutions that what it's going to take for us to support those types of students. That speaks to national policy around the Pell Grant, about institutional aid focused on need-based aid, the types of support services that you need to be able to support students who come from different backgrounds. So I think the picture is much more complicated than the overarching national numbers, and it's very much regional because the vast majority of institutions, even some of the institutions that people would perceive are national institutions, there's a handful of national institutions. I mean, what's interesting is you take Harvard, for instance, and the large share of their enrollment comes from the Northeast. So this whole idea that a vast majority of institutions draw nationally that that are like a Miami, but much of their backyard is actually part of the the, the evaluation of being able to, to look at the geography. On that, on that point, Michael, uh, our out-of-state enrollment at Miami has increased fairly dramatically over the last few years. How do you think about that in terms of being in the Midwest, how do we compete? We're not the research one institution in the state. Ohio State is, yet I think we have a higher out-of-state percentage in terms of enrollment. So how did that start playing into this? And I think this became fairly important after the economic crisis that uh, we just had to uh, broaden out our, our base for who we were admitting to Miami. There's a number of factors that play into that. First is the demographics are not helpful to us. I mean, if you look at the graduate, if you look at the high school graduates in the state of Ohio, it's roughly 130,000 high school graduates a year, mm -hmm. and in many cases declining. Um, African Americans are decreasing over the next five to seven years. You look at Hispanic students, there's an increase there. So the state of Ohio, when you look at the landscape of public higher education, there's 14 four-year public institutions. There are over a hundred private institutions. It is ultra competitive in a state that the enrollment is stagnant. So for a place like a Miami or even to that extent like an Ohio state, we have the ability to go out and, and draw from a larger area. So the the focus has been to to recruit and 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 enroll the best and brightest from the state of Ohio, but at the same time extend our reach. One it's out of urgency because of the demographics, but Two, it's also connected to the fact that we can't meet our mission of the university if we were just to recruit students from the state of Ohio. There's a financial aspect to that, certainly, but also, too, in terms of being able to diversify in, in all shapes, in all senses of the word, um, the enrollment at, uh, at Miami. Interestingly enough, now that we are 65 percent of our applications um, last year came from outside of the state of Ohio. Yeah. I think when you look at the demographic trends, that's not something that will, will change back in the days when it was much more Ohio than not. Mm -hmm. So you start each year with a, with a target. I want to have this many thousands of students in our first year class. How do you decide, you know, when you start with that kind of number and you know that you have a certain mix that you want to, to achieve in certain divisions, how do you decide how many applicants you'd like to get? I mean, not, not you. I'm not, I'm not putting this all on you, Michael. I mean, that's, <laughs> but, in, but for an institution that's trying to plan for this, I mean, how do you, how do you make a decision like, okay, how much do we use historical information? How, much, how reliable is that given a system that may be changing pretty dramatically from one year to the next? Yeah, I, I definitely start off with the premise that um, all models are wrong, some are useful. Isn't that something we've, we've, we've heard before? Um, and, and, I, and I share that with the president and the board of trustees, but oftentimes that doesn't go uh, very far. Uh, 
what you bring up is a is a is a really um, important topic and really the focus of what I would consider an enrollment management function at a university. First, it starts with engaging in conversations with each of the academic areas about what is your capacity, what types of students do you want to attract, what types of areas of emphasis do you want, and, and that's how you build your recruitment program. And then once the students apply to the institution, um, one of the things that you're doing is you're deciding how many students to admit to the university, but also how many students do you admit into the, the business school? How many students do you need to admit in the honors program? How many university scholars do you take in each of the, the 13 areas that we have scholars programs? So the way to think about this is there's a bunch of models within the models um, uh, and how we admit them. The, the interesting thing about this, too, um, a few things have taken place that make this much more complicated um, over the past number of years. One, students are applying to more institutions. Mm. And in particular, the most selective and competitive institutions. So when you look at our competitive set, um, we last year alone lost 600 students that were admitted to Miami, went to other places. And certainly when you look at the dem demographics, many are Big Ten institutions. You have your Vanderbilts. You have really strong private institutions that are competing for the types of students we're competing for. So the models have continued over a period of time. It's using history to predict the future. And to me, there's always this art and science in terms of here's what the model says, but you know, that doesn't feel right to me. Or I think the model's under predicting that. Um, so certainly uh, that, that has definitely played more complexity to this because you have to put all those pieces together because at the end of the day, you can't have more than 3,800 students enroll or else they're not going to have housing. So there, mm. there are real constraints. And then there are restraints that faculty uh, think the class size gets too big. So there, there's real okay. constraints. And then perceived and otherwise constraints. So, so I, if I can just quickly follow up. So do you evaluate your models each year after and look at the performance and go, oh man, did we miss on that one? And then try to analyze kind of what are the components of that? And you know, can you share a story of one where you've, you've realized some other predictor that really emerged as being critically important that you had not previously considered? Yeah. You know, um, the uh, oftentimes, and it's probably not uh, unlike Miami, there's a handful of factors that are going to be the biggest drivers of the model in terms of predicting enrollment, right? Because what you're trying to do is if you admit X number of students, how many of those students are going to come? And biggest drivers are academic ability of the student, which won't be a surprise. Students who are academically talented, and you can we can talk about ac what that means. It's, it's ACT, it's GPA, it's also what I would consider an academic index score looking at the quality of their high school curriculum. Amount of money offered, distance to the institution, it plays in a, a factor of that. And then also, too, there's very strong differences when you start to look at the, the division of major. So, for instance, a farmer school of business student is going to have more national draw, more competition to it. So there's there's all those different factors that play into it. So you're asking a time. One of the things that this happened this past year and one of the best predictors of, of whether a student was going to enroll at your institution was actually based on FAFSA information. Mm -hmm. um, FAFSA, when, when you fill out a, a financial aid, the federal financial aid form, families have the ability to put in rank order what institution that they want. Where the student put the institution was actually one of the strongest predictors. Huh. This past year, the Department of Education thought it was being misused and completely pulled it. Um, so we go from something that is one of the strongest predictors to not at all being able to, to use in the model. So we had to, to have a lot of conversations about what parts of the model should we rely on more heavily. So interesting. That was a curveball. Yeah. <laughs> 
You're listening to Stats and Stories, and our discussion today focuses on university enrollment, admissions, and retention. Our guest is Michael Cabaz, Vice President for Enrollment Management and Student Success at Miami University. I'm Rosemary Pennington, along with our regular panelist, Miami University Media, Journalism, and Film Chair, Richard Campbell, and Statistics Department Chair, John Baylor. I have a question that's more about sort of how you keep the students here. So I was reading something today that said uh, Miami's retention rate is at 92%. Um, so I was wondering if you could explain what exactly you're factoring into that retention rate and and what is keeping students here. Yeah, so uh, retention rate, um, when you look at um, a lot of conversation about what what is a retention rate mean. Um, There's a federal definition of first-time, full-time students that begin in the fall and are here the following fall. So that's what makes up the 92%. So so theoretically, we can go and benchmark ourselves against institutions um, regionally and nationally to to have that comparison. That that retention rate puts us, you know, in the top handful of Mm -hmm. institutions in the country and and the associated uh, graduation rate that is also high here as well. One of the things that a a couple factors play into retention models, um, first and foremost, most is the student's academic mm-hmm. ability. That That is going to be um, one of the strongest predictors of their ability to be here. We have a very strong incoming uh, student body, which, which contributes to it. Um, being a residential campus is also a strong factor that the students have to make an intentional decision to come to Oxford, Ohio, and mm-hmm. and move into the residence hall. So by the very nature of our population, it's not a transient population. You have to be able to come to Oxford to engage. And 98% of our students live within two miles of campus. So, so part of it is a high ability uh, student body. One, you have a residential. At, at, and, and also, too, you know, and this is not just because I have faculty sitting around the table uh, <laughs> with me, um, but certainly um, what happens in the classroom, um, the ability for th- that faculty have the biggest impact on students progressing in the process. So those factors play in uh, very much into why I believe we have a strong retention rate. I'm curious. I'm glad you opened up this the idea of once a student is here, what might what might happen in their lives. Um, you know, part of the student success component of your of your office and and maybe of, of many universities are things like enrollment analytics. The idea that that once someone is here, there are these student success factors that you're going to try to track in order to try to predict their likelihood, or or maybe to monitor a student who's at risk of problems. You know, how are models being used there, and and what are some of the insights that you think those will will provide? Yeah, so this is uh, uh, the topic, uh, certainly, of the day as it relates to this work. Um, You have institutions who are very what they, the term, and they would use this term uh, intentionally, is intrusive advising, where these models are actually predicting that a student is likely not to be successful at that institution and then becomes a very prescriptive intervention process. I mean, there's there's actually institutions, very very well-regarded institutions, where if a student's off track for too long, they'll, they'll actually work with them to change their major. Um, the Miami philosophy tends to, to be a lot more let the student figure out what they want to do. Um, so this is an interesting conversation for us in particular at Miami. So there's a lot of national conversations to look at. We certainly have the the tools and the, um, the software, if you will, to be able to do predictive analytics where we can get to the fact, um, in fact, this past year, um, we were able to predict Four students, three out of four students who who didn't come back, we were able to predict three out of the four. And that's just with the academic data. So the conversation becomes, what other factors should we start to include in that conversation? That doesn't include any of the co-curricular data. You know, is the student in the library? 
look at the judicial data. So what you start to get into is this whole conversation, um, the proverbial big brother. Mm -hmm. And we know a lot about a student. If you can connect those pieces together, it can be very predictive. And, and, and I think part of this too, this conversation tends to be, particularly from the academic advising perspective, is you can be an academic advisor and very much the way you have done your work is on the qualitative experience. That, that experience is real. You've worked with students for 25 years and you know if they're doing this. But now data starts to enter in the conversation and then what do you do with that? And, and the data tends to be create fear of, of, of the data being used against the students. So I think that conversation is kind of where we are in that conversation in that spectrum of, of big data. Uh, following up on that, you mentioned earlier the SERP data, the freshman survey mm -hmm. data. And if you look at Miami's data going back, I think this started in the early 70s, we've consistently recruited classes that are a little bit more conservative than our rivals, where, you know, most public institutions who are our peers, more students identify as liberal. Here it's flipped. We also have a high percentage of Catholics compared to other institutions, Catholic population. I mean, it's 8, 9, 10% higher than what you see at other institutions. Is this something that you look at in the data as you look at this, this SERP data going back that plays? And it's fairly consistent over time. I mean, this has been true, particularly in the polit political area, it's been true for, for, uh, for many years. You know, what's fascinating about this con this concept is when you're out um, around the country and you're talking to prospective families and students, um, I, I very much believe in this this concept of birds of feather flock together. Mm -hmm. And what you what you tend to find, you know, so for instance, about a third of the incoming students have either brother or sister who went here, mother, father, or grandparents. So what, what tends to be the case is you tend to replicate the, the student body coming from kind of the similar family background. So much of that is built into the fabric of kind of, but what's interesting about that conversation is you start to venture out and recruit a much more national and international population. We should start to see those trends shift and, and the conversation becomes, you know, those are things that you don't go out and say, you know, particularly as a public institution, there's no, no thumb on the scale for the Catholics or, or otherwise. Um, <laughs> But, but you do bring into this conversation as you start to expand our reach around the country, you know, how open we are to other religion. How open are we to, to those other diversity, you know, as, as the population shifts in, in a variety of different ways. So I'm always interested in the stories that we're not telling, that, you know, our journalism students aren't telling. Do you, have, do you have stories that are surprises to you, things that you wish journalists would ask you? You're kind of missing a story here. There's, the, you know, some of these things about that we find over over time are interesting to me. And I always, I always think there are a lot of sort of untold stories uh, in this whole process. So even particularly at Miami or just even nationally? Nationally or at Miami. Well, I'll, I'll start with uh, at Miami. Um, one of the areas that we've been spending a lot of time on related to this student success conversation is um, I've put in place a student success center. And the way to best think about these four staff people is they don't have, they're not in student affairs and they're not in academic affairs. What their job is to do is to work with students because oftentimes students' issues are both academic and socio-emotional, mm -hmm. right? It doesn't tend to be one or the other. And through the course of this, what, what I think a lot of people perceive is Miami, um, per, 
perceptions, right or wrong or indifferent, about affluence, about students, you know, having. And what you start to dig in is we have significant cases of food insecurity. Mm-hmm. Um, students who do really worry about, and and I've these are these are real students on our campus, um, and we've had cases of homelessness um, actually on this campus. So I think there's a lot more to what what tends to be when you look at the the actual demographics. Mm-hmm. It tends to look like an affluent population from this, but I think there's a lot more more stories behind those scenes than than a lot of people perceive Miami to be. In fact, for people that work on this campus, I think are surprised to hear these conversations. So, I'm, I'm, you know, you had mentioned in passing the idea of kind of the value of having all this data available, but also the potential concerns about privacy and intrusiveness that might be associated with it. So can you talk a little bit about kind of the the how, how you think about and how your office thinks about data, the, the security and confidentiality of this information and sort of what are some of the constraints that you operate with? Yeah, so first and foremost, I mean, confidentiality has to be the, the baseline for everything. And what I view our role is is relative to the campus community is for us to share these are the data we have, this is the information we glean from it, and what is the campus's interest in going down this route. So I think the conversation is, and and, and, and I guess the premise that I have, and, and, and as I talk to academic advisors around campus or even faculty, is let's not assume that data should be used for evil. Let's assume that data should be used for good. And if you start to use that lens to think about this, what you start to find is students who are predicted not to be successful. What's the worst case scenario that if a faculty were to reach out or if a student affairs professional were to reach out and just to check in on how that student's doing, the worst case scenario is that student's doing fine or the alternative is actually that student could use some help. So the idea is I think we have to reframe the conversation is that data can be used negatively. I think we have professionals and people who, who can do that. But but the idea that we should use it to actually um, help students. In fact, I would probably push it a step further and say I, I would actually make the argument that because we know things about students, it's, it's almost incumbent upon us to take action otherwise. So I tend to, I always tend to see it from a pretty uh, data heavy perspective, um, but also to pressing that against what has been a pretty qualitative profession, meaning broadly defined academic advising. And well, Michael Cabaz, thank you so much for being here. Michael Cabaz is the uh, Vice President for Enrollment Management and Student Success at Miami University. That's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories, which is a partnership between the Departments of Media, Journalism, and Film and Statistics here at Miami and the American Statistical Association. With the start of the new year, we're excited to announce this new partnership and a more frequent release of programming. Stay tuned and keep following us on Twitter or iTunes. If you'd like to share your thoughts on our program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. (laughs) 